can you can you get the Blake poems? We'll we'll pick up with them. I heard Mark saying something a few minutes ago about poetry, and um, I just want to comment on respond to his comment. Um, if you don't mind. I, I've told this story before, but it, it, it's worth repeating. When I was a, I had, I think I told you, I flunked out of college in my freshman year. Um, I, I flunked bonehead English twice. <laughs> that I should be writing a book. If any of you don't think that's amazing, um, where was I going? Oh, I transferred as a junior from. Um, JC after I pulled my grades up and went to Berkeley, which was one of the better academic institutions in the country. We lived, we lived close by. It's where Suzanne and I met when we were at Berkeley. Um, and it was my first real experience of poetry. Um, I, I, I'm assuming I had some poetry in high school, but honestly I don't remember. The only experience with poetry that I remember in my high school is one day when a teacher had a student read a poem, and I was blown away. I mean, I don't, I don't remember reading anything. I, I, I got really good grades in high school, but I don't remember doing anything. I played basketball. Um, but when I went to Berkeley, in the, in the lit crit course that I was required to take as an English major, we had a section on poetry, and we started reading poems. Gerard Manley Hopkins, and you can imagine if you looked at Windhover, you know, the way he combines words. Hopkins, some of these simple like Frost. I mean, nobody's, maybe Blake is a little bit simpler. Very few people are simpler than Robert Frost. I don't remember who he read, but I can remember being dumbfounded and going to him and saying, what is this? I've been reading, I mean, I was, I had flunked out of school. I'd been out of school for a couple of years, so I was just a couple of years older. That was a junior year, however old I was, 23, 24, I don't remember. I wasn't an in, I mean, young kid anymore. I hadn't done a lot of reading. Reading wasn't a part of my background. I grew up. I really did not read at all. Mm. Um, but I, I, I was doing well enough to transfer to Berkeley and get accepted, and I was in an English program. And I didn't have any difficulties with it until I had to read these poems. And I, I could not make sense of them. They just mystified, truly, they mystified me. And I went to this teacher, Thomas Ark, who was one of the great inspirations in my life, and he said, poetry um, is made up, this is, I think I, I told you, poetry is made up of words that form sentences that say something about human experience. Well, that blew everything, I mean, it was so simple that I think the effect of, I didn't say it to him, but I'm sure I said it to myself. Then what, what's the big deal? What am I, you know? Poetry is made up of words that probably make up phrases, that make up sentences, that say something about human experience. It, it just demystified it. it. It suddenly made, it brought it within my reach. There's nothing difficult about poetry once you start reading it. But if you've not read it before and you start reading these forms and think, you know, what is, then it can be a trouble. I hope it's not been a trouble in our work together because we've been reading pretty simple poems and it seems to me you all have been relating to them, I hope. Um, 
Anyway, just be patient with them. They, they, are, they are like everything else. They're, they're statements that help us enter into human experience. So, Okay, Blake, we did the introduction, remember, and just to remind you, in that opening poem, it's the head poem to the whole collection of songs from experience and innocence. And remember, he's, he's, it's a poem about his being called, in a sense, to write prophetic poetry. So this goes right to the heart of what we do. Remember, it begins with, uh, with Blake describing himself piping on an instrument, piping down the valleys while piping. On a cloud I saw a child, he laughed, he said to me, pipe a song, so he pipes, remember? He pipes the song, but the piping brings tears to the child. And the child is an angel, I mean, that's his word for an angel, the angel comes to him. Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with Mary Cheer, Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped. That is, the, what sometimes, I think we all know this, sometimes art, can reduce us to tears. We can be in the middle of a movie or in the middle of a play or hear a song. We can be in church and a song can be played. I mean, I know it's true for me. I'm assuming it's true for you. That I mean, I find myself sometimes just getting teary listening to certain songs. We all, I think we probably all have our favorites that something really moves us and when it does, it's like our heart opens. This is strange because an angel hearing this song by a human weeps. Drop the, so it's as, if the, it's as if the angel is learning from the man. So in response to what he hears, he says, Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy song. So he's moving from a pipe to a song. He's going to sing now. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Again, the angel was so moved by what he did that he wept. Then the child says, Piper, sit thee down and write in a book, and all may read. So he vanished, and I plucked the hump, and he writes. And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs. Every child may joy to hear. It's really important to notice. He moves from, from working with an instrument to singing to writing. The direction of that is in the direction of something particular to something universal. When you're playing an instrument, only those people who are within hearing range can hear you, right? So your audience is very limited. In moving from an instrument to a song, you're, you're using words, which means conceptually you're dealing with something more universal. So you're moving beyond the senses, right, in a pipe, to words. Now you're involved the word, the logos, something more conceptual. And then finally he writes, because in writing, you can reach a universal audience. So it's really clear that he sees himself as moving from something more simple and more particular and more limited to something more universal. That's all in the direction of being a prophet, using words that way. So that was the song that, that begins his collection of songs of experience and, um, and innocence. We read the first two. I just want to read the next two on page two. To just turn the page. These are both parts of larger poems. The first one is from his larger poem called Jerusalem, and the second is from a larger poem called Milton. 
And in both of them, you see a poet. This is, this is so wonderful. It lines up so well with Melville. You see a poet grieving over what's happening to his nation, his people, his country. Must have been something similar to what Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, any of the Old Testament prophets, would have felt watching the Jews turn from God. Except this is modern, this is a poet watching England lose its roots, its Christian roots. So, from Jerusalem. England, awake, awake, awake. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death and close her from thy ancient walls? Thy hills and valleys felt her feet gently upon their bosoms move. Thy gates behold sweet Zion's ways. Then was a time of joy and love. And now the time returns again. Our souls exult and London's towers receive the Lamb of God to dwell in England's green and pleasant bowers. From Milton. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? It's as if they're gone now. That instead of green pastures, you've got an industrial world that is transforming. It's what Pope Francis was talking about, the way we spoil our, our environment, the natural world that we live in. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? Like it's gone. Where's the light of God's face? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills, this industrial world that is despoiling nature? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. It's once again a, a poet um, grieving the, the loss of the Christian culture that he was once a part of, and standing up on his own and calling that culture back. Beautiful lines. Remember what I said last week, and I'm sure you all appreciate it. They're so simple. I mean, his lines are so simple. It's not like you have to be a great intellect to, you know, or be sophisticated. He just, they're, they're the, there's, there's not a word in either, in none, of, in none of these lines that a sixth grader doesn't use. It's just what he does with them that matters. Okay, let's start. What I'd like to do today um, is, in everything that I do in the review and um, when I get us up to where we are this week and, and look at the chapters that we were scheduled to look at this week, I'd like to try to stay in the text a little bit more um, to help you along with the reading and um, make Mel Melville more familiar to all of us. So, um, 
We've talked about um, the ship as an image of American industry, and remember, it's, it's, in one sense, it's impossible to do that because the ship's at sea, and we have to deal with the sea as an image of something different from what's on land. So this isn't an industry. It's not the satanic mills on land. The Pequot is at sea, and that's important. And we, we have to keep in mind what the sea is in an Im as an image in literature. And I want to come back to that. But just keep that in mind. It, it's a way of qualifying what I'm about to say here. Um, if we look at the ship as an image of an American industry, what we see is something terrible. Um, turn to chapter 16, page 110. I'm working out of two books or so. Um, I think. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I chapter 16, sorry. It's chapter, yeah, chapter 16, 10. Now Bill did like Pillig, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect. And to this day its inhabitants in general retain an uncommon measure the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. On 111, um, in the middle of the page, like Captain Pillag, Bilded was a well-to-do retired whaleman, but unlike him, he said, Bilded had not only been originally educated according to the strictest sect of Nantucket Quakerism, but all his subsequent ocean life and the sight of many unclad lovely island creatures round the horn all that had not moved this native-born Quaker one single jot had not so much as altered one angle of his vest. So he's remained um, faithful in the strict upbringing he had as a boy. Still, for all this immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildeth? Though refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of leviathan gore. How now, in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence? I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much. And very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing and his practical world quite another. 
this world pays dividends. So on the basis of that, I mean, keeping in mind that earlier phrase that they are um, fighting Quakers, Quakers with a vengeance, everything they've done has been to set out and conquer nature, to make it yield to them what they want. So we have in this American enterprise this sense of being able to master nature to make it give up what they want with a vengeance. So it's interesting here because remember the, the beginnings of America are religious. The first Puritan or the people who settled in the north is the south is a commercial republic venture. That's a different the, the first foundings in the south are plantation foundings. They're, they're business enterprise. In, you all know that I think. In the north the pilgrims who come here are fleeing persecution. They, they want to practice their religion. So the very nature of our founding in the North, anyway, is religious. But here we see that that religious temper, the intensity of it, the strictness of it, once it's applied to an industry, wrecks havoc. It, it leaves violence in its wake everywhere. Um, so one of the things that we see in the Pequod is this modern spirit of wanting to conquer, to master nature, to make it yield up something so that they can benefit from it. Um, on chapter 10, page 85-86, the contrast to this, this is Ishmael, you know he's going to change when he gets on board in the quarter deck, but um, remember this is the night when he and Ishmael, I mean Queequeg, are, are beginning to warm to each other. He watches Queequeg perform his ritual with Yojo, his little idol, and watching how content and calm he was in these practices. And at the top of 85 he says, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering around the casements and peering in upon a silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without in solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. Now remember, he opened the book, ready to kill people. He was bringing up funeral lines. <laughs> he, was, he had this cloud over him. Um, when he saw Queequeg the first night, remember when Queequeg entered the room, he was terrified. And when Queequeg jumped into bed with him, he let out this yelp and was afraid he was going to get beheaded or scalped. So a day later, after that opening, his heart is beginning to open. Um, the storm booming out in solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. The soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference, his very indifference. Think about how different it is. Everybody else in this world is holding on to the world possessively because they depend on it to conquer it. It's as if they're saying, it's like Gollum, it's mine, it's mine. Quico is, is indifferent. He stands apart from it. Um, the soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking, a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, and yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. The way grace works on our lives, that very often we meet these strangest people who seem outside of our circles, and they suddenly break walls all around us, and we find ourselves capable of feeling things we didn't know we were capable of before. Page 86. 
I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of infallible Presbyterian church. He asks himself, now what am I supposed to do when, when this barbarian is practicing these pagan rituals that are, according to our beliefs, heretical? Um, um, what would God expect of him? But what is worship, he says, if I'm supposed to worship along with Queequeg? To do the will of God. That is worship. And what is the will of God? To do my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. <laughs> this, the, by the way, I, the logic, as far as I can tell, is flawless. So I don't think we can fault him here. We may question his premises, but the logic is infallible here. Um, that is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what I do, I wish that this Queequeg would do so to me. Well, what would he... What would he wish? Why unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship? Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindle the shade. He enters into the worship with him. All that does is draw him more intimately in, into a friendship uh, with Quiquen. So we've got this tension. The ship itself is bound out to conquer. You, you remember in the, quarter, in the quartermaster scene when Ahab gathers around, Quico's going to be one of those. I mean, sorry, Ishmael is going to be one of those. He commits himself to the quest. But at the same time, something is breaking into his heart here. So he's a divided man at this point, whether he knows it or not. Um, last week we talked about the, the hierarchy of the ship, remember? Um, Ahab was at the top, and there were the, the uh, um, Starbuck um, stub and flask. Remember the three mates, and then the harpooners Tashtigo. Um, What am I missing? Oh, here, sorry, yeah. Let me see Queequeg, Tashtigo, and Dagi. And what we saw, interestingly, is really important to see um, because, in one sense, the hierarchy represents an image of America at large, the structure defining how we carry on our activities. You've got a captain, a CEO, a leader at the head. All of the mates including the first mate, are white men, and they're civilized. They're men given to their intellects. I want to come back to that because we have to see what they do with their intellects. And the, har the harpooners are all natives. They're, the, they're images of noble savages, and they come from all over the world. They're athletic, and they serve the purposes. The, they give the muscle to the mates to carry on their task. So we've got a natural hierarchy here. Um, but the important thing to remember here, this is the hierarchy, but when they leave port, everybody understands that their mission is to hunt whales. That's, that's what unites them. In the quarterdeck scene, Ahab takes over and he gathers everybody in this personal quest of vengeance, and um, nobody does anything. The one person who questions it is Starbuck, and he backs off. And we see in, this, the, in this, the scene, I think just before that, um, when Ahab comes on deck and Stubb questions him, remember that um, Ahab cowers him, breaks him down, calls him names, and 
um, Stubb is humiliated. Um, a, a couple of things to remember here. Where's the... Um, just quick to look at. And remember the title of both of those... Um, the title of both of those chapters dealing with a hierarchy are Knights and Squires. Those are titles given, honorary t- titles given in the uh, feudal world to lords and their knights. Um, what's Melville doing? I mean, it's hard for me to see anything but an irony in that because they're anything but knights and squires. We couldn't be farther, we, we're, we couldn't be farther removed from the Christian Middle Ages than we are here. So. Turn to page, I mean, chapter 27. I just want to look at, remember, Starbeck is described as this very keen, intellectual, moral, respectable man. But he had that, and, and think about this, I'm, I'm always amazed. You know, you've been hearing me talk about the knowledge of poetry. Think about what Melville manages to help us see because he's so articulate. When he makes descriptions of things, he helps us to see things ordinarily we don't see at all. So when he's describing Starbuck, he's describing Starbuck as most of us would see him. He's intelligent, he's moral, he's strict. Um, We would call him a pretty tough-minded man. He'd be the kind of man who would stand up and speak socially in a a civil setting and stand for a purpose. When he comes up against Ahab, he gets bowed down. Um, Remember Stubbs' response when he wants to go back and fight with Ahab and finally says, and he's troubling over the thoughts. And I think I read that last week where he says, um, but, the, but that's to think, and my 11th commandment is to think not, so, and to go, to go to sleep. So ultimately, when he faces difficulties, he either goes to sleep or he th- thinks not at all. His 11th commandment is think not. I just want to read this, this description of um, stuff, or I mean, flask, because I don't remember doing it last week on page 159. Um, so utterly lost was he to all sense that's the last paragraph all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways and so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them that in his poor opinion the wondrous whale was but a species of magnified mouse so here are these three men who are the mates who are known for their intellects, and what we see in one of them is a keen intellectual mind. One of them doesn't use his intellect when he faces danger, and the other one minimizes or laughs things off. He just passes them off. What we see in in all of these people, and here's the crucial point to make, what we see in the, the white men and the natives, that is, the white men represent a civilized group. The harpooners represent unconscious natives. These, are, these men are very conscious. These are unconscious. They do things intuitively, instinctively. None of them can deal with spiritual evil. Not a one. There's not a man on board that has within him the means of dealing with a spiritual evil when he comes... Um, in the presence of it. 
So if we take this back to our critique of Christianity, there's, remember I, I, I made the description that what we see on land is that, is, that, is that this Christian faith has declined into a moral code. It's a social code. It's lost its bearings in a faith that's real or strong. And what we see in all of these men when they have to deal with this evil that they have is all of them um, collapse. They just they pull back. They don't deal with it. So what's, again, what's Melville showing us about this Christian culture? Um, we talked about the, the different ways of reading. I, I, we've already looked at it. I, I just want to quickly recall that, remember if you take the Cytology chapter, which most everybody passes over, and you set it next to the whale, the, the Moby Dick chapter, and the whiteness of the whale, you, you see clearly these two different ways of reading come into focus. The Cytology is a parody on the way science attempts to understand things. It either does it inductively or puts things in a class and identifies its differentiator, those things that distinguish it from other things in a class. In the Moby Dick chapter, in the whiteness of the whale, what we get are all these accounts, these strange accounts of, um, what's he called them? Um, what's the word? Um, hold on, let me find it. Prodigies. That there's all these lores and strange stories that Moby Dick seems to be ubiquitous. People have cited him on one side of the planet and, exact, and other people have cited him on exactly the opposite side of time of the planet and exactly the same time. Um, and we get all these stories that seem to be superstitious, but there's something to them because all these strange things are happening. And, um, and then he gives us that chapter on the whiteness of the whale, and you remember his descriptions of, of that strange effect that whiteness has in different forms. It can be an albino, it can be a horse smelling a buffalo when he doesn't even see it. He gives all these examples that there's, there's something eerie, of, even though whiteness is associated with holiness and innocence, it's also associated with ghosts, demons, and, and privations, the absence of things that actually can cause a terror. If you watch horror movies and you watch a white fog fall over a scene, you know what's going to come next. I mean, we all know what's coming. Um, so um, what he's doing is setting the, 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 those two different ways of reading the world next to each other. And, and I want, I'm, let me hold off on why, because it's going to go to what we're doing with today. But anyway, it's two different, very, two different ways of reading the world. Okay. The sea we've talked about as, as a dangerous place and um, that there are two things to recall about. It's not home. Man's home was land. We're meant to be at home. To go to sea is not an, an ordinary part of our life. To go to sea is to put our lives in danger. Um, the sea very often in literature is equated with the unconscious those dark things that we don't see, there's lots going under the sea that we don't see in its depths. Um, it, it has to do with what's formless. The land is a place where we give form to things, where things have identity. We can name them. They have a form. The sea is formless. It's always in motion. It's an image of life. It's constantly in flux. We can't get a hold of it. When man presumes to conquer the sea, he usually 
usually gives into a spirit of hubris. We saw that in Homer in the Odyssey. If you conquer, the, if you if you presume to conquer the sea, you're presuming to conquer nature. And if the gods are present in nature, you're committing a sin. That's very Catholic, very Christian, by the way, because we believe. Remember, God created nature. He's image there. We create a world. So presumably, we're supposed to take our bearings from nature. But very often, we want to master it. The Pequod wants to master nature. We've seen that. Its spirit is conquest, control. The sea by its very nature resists that. Um, and then we looked at the quarterdeck. That's the scene in which Ahab calls everybody together. He puts the doubloon on the mast. And um, you remember from our talk last week that what he does is appeals to everybody's sense of having been wounded in their lives and wanting vengeance. And um, it seems to me that's where he gets his power. He's appealing to something all of us feel. If anybody were to present themselves, Christ, by the way, I, I, wait, I, I want to be clear, I'm not comparing him to Ahab, but, but think about the importance of this. Christ came to heal our wounds to answer them. So there's that correspondence. I don't think Christ would have any meaning for us if he, if he didn't go to a cross to take on our wounds to help us find a way of answering them. That's at the center of our faith. The difference is Ahab, Christ gives himself up. Ahab wants to destroy. His answer to the wound is to get back at the thing that gave him the wound. So there's a, in, in its spirit, it's fundamentally vengeful. Um, that's where we left off. And, and um, we talked a little bit about the plot. And, um, um, I'm going to come back to that in minutes because it's going to be a big thing what I'm going to do. But so let me wait on this. Um, I, I left you with that question, and I want to raise it again and just leave it hanging. I, I don't want to answer it. I just want to put it out there again because it seems to me really important. The, the really serious question that I, that I asked everybody last time is this. If Ahab is an image of... Remember, let me go back. All the, all the epics that we've read to this point have had one thing in common. All of them. All of them. They all deal with the disorders of a people. The poet is the spokesman for that people. He's revealing a disorder and showing us that through the help of the gods, some person is called out, chosen, to bear a divinely appointed task, a burden. He will be, he will be the means of answering that disorder, whatever the disorder is, and helping the people to come to a resolution to bring a people back into attunement with the gods. So the gods work with this individual. They're helping him bear some problem. He's going to introduce something new into the world that will help resolve this problem. So that when, when we come to the end of, a, of an epic, um, we see that a refounding takes place. And I've made this point again and again. It's not in terms of bricks or mortar. The question is, how many people in, in, the, in the epic themselves see what's happening? How many readers do? How many readers actually understand what's happening? Very few readers are understanding what goes on in epic worlds, but I hope everybody's clear on that. <coughs> Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, yeah, all of them. They are bringing something back that's essential for a people if it's, if it's to, rec 
recover its place with God to address this disorder. Is that clear? So, I don't want to go back over the list, but you, I mean, you can identify it if you've been here. The disorder in the Iliad, the disorder in, in the honor code, the disorder in marriages in the Odyssey, the disorder in cities in the Iliad. We can, um, and Dante deals with disorders that are specific to the commercial republic, to our world. So, there's a there's a twofold question here. If this is an epic, and I'm claiming that it is, and this is an epic cosmos, he's taking us back to Eden. We will return there. Some of the readings that we'll look at today recall Eden. We're in a cosmic world again. This is not a novel. We're in a, much, we're in a mythic world. Strange things are going on. Um, if this is an epic, what's the disorder that Melville's looking at in us as Americans? And... Um, What's the action taking place that will lead us to a new founding? An answer to those disorders. I've suggested that Ishmael is a Jonah figure, right? The parallels to Jonah have been pretty clear. He, and he, he will be the only survivor. What is he bringing back to tell us? If we're Nineveh, I believe we are, what is, what is it that we have to hear if, if we're to straighten out our character as a people? So what's the founding here? What's the founding action? Who's the epic hero? Ahab, Ishmael. But the other question that I ask that relates to this one is, is this. If Ahab is an image of something fundamentally American, what is it? How do we account for it? I remember I gave that example of Ahab's a figure who, um, who is obsessed with wanting to get back at this whale. So everything in his life has a purpose in blaming something in nature and getting back at it. And you know that, that the Ahab action is the tragic action in a comic work, that Ishmael begins it, Ishmael ends it, but in the center of it is this Ahab action. It's a tragic action. Ahab will go to his death. The, the whole ship will, will, will be destroyed. Um, where does this impulse to blame, to point fingers, um, to want to get back for the wounds that we suffer? Remember, that was in the opening chapters because a or Ishmael talked about that universal thump. We all get thumped. And he said, sh sh you all remember? Should I read it again? Remember that? If you, if you go back to Luke, this is in the very first chapter. He talks about um, every, all people having a sense of honor, this is, by the way, this takes us back to the Iliad, and being wounded in it. We all get pushed around and we all get angry when we experience that, our, our sense of honor of who we are. This, this goes right back to our beginnings in the Iliad. God, it's amazing. He says, what of it if some old hulks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What did, now hold on to that because in the town ho country, that's going to be the issue because Radney is going to ask Steelkilt to sweep the decks. And Steelkilt's going to say no because of the indignity of it. What does that indignity amount to weight, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hulks? Very often, we're, we work with people. I know that this, I mean, I, I watched the policeman today. I, know, I shouldn't say this. I saw some of the leaders and was a little bit embarrassed. 
Is there anybody who has not grown up and been involved in work who hasn't felt insulted or slighted by some boss who really shouldn't have been in that position? I can't believe we all haven't had that experience. Wait, wait, and wait, just go back. What's the, what's the, what's the opening theme of Western civilization in the Iliad? Achilles is humiliated by his king, who is an idiot. And everything that happens, happens because this king does stupid things. Is there anybody who's lived in this world who hasn't been under a boss that for all purposes should not have been in that position? We all know that. I promptly and respectfully obey that old hoax in that particular instance. Who ate a slave? Tell me. Well, then however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction. By the way, can you remember, Melville spent his life at sea. Melville went to sea. He ran away as a young boy. Is this Melville at 18 years old? Do you believe he obeyed sea captains who told him to mop a deck when he was 18? By the way, no. By the way, he was involved in the mutiny when he was a young kid. Ishmael is more mature than, than Melville when he went to sea. There's a lot of growing that's taken place to get Melville at this point. Well then, however the old sea captain may order me about, however that may thump, may punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it's all right, that everybody else in one way or another served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is, and so the universal thump is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Easier said than done, I don't just put... Um, <laughs> Okay, so um, the, the question that I asked last week was where does this impulse come from? This tendency, if Ahab is an image of us as Americans, some tragic aspect that all of us carry inside of ourselves, to blame, to get back, to want to get back at the source of our wounds, why does it take such Depths, where do these depths come from? That they're so deep. Um, I, thought, I thought Jane's response, how did you put it last? How did you put it? I hope I remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I just think it's the American thing because it goes back to the revolution and they were wronged and they all got together and fought against it. Yeah. It's in our national character. I mean, just there are two things that I want to point out here. Just remember, and they coincide. One is our Puritan founding the, um, was Protestant. Basically, the, the the Puritans came here to to resist to get away from religious persecution. They wanted to create a world free of the kind of persecution that they suffered from that prevented them from worshiping the way they wanted. So they were responding to a wrong, and it was religious in character. The Protestant world, and th stop and think about this for a moment, the Protestant world takes the form of a protest against... Authority, the Pope. Well, whole, I mean, I think there's more there, but I mean, that's certain, certainly a large... I just want to put it metaphysically in a broader context, if I can leave the Pope out for a minute. Their, respond, their response is against something. It's a protest against... If you look at the reforms of the earlier church, 
whatever it is, the Benedictine, the Franciscan, the Dominican, any of the reforms, they come from within the church to protect its center because that center is Christ and all that he passed on. The Protestant world is schismatic in the sense that it breaks from that. It's against something. Um, so combine those two things. You, you've got a, 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 a deeply um, inspired religious aspect to our founding on the one hand, and in terms of our political national character, you've got a resistance to a wrong added to it. Now put those two things together on a national scale, and how does it define us as a people? I mean, is there something there? Let me just leave it as a question to hold on to. But what we've got in Ahab, if, if we see this as an epic, and he is an image of something deeply American, then we cannot just dismiss this. He's showing us something I believe is in every one of us. Now let me go back, if I can, just for one minute. And I want to leave this because it's, it's where, I, where I feel like I'm on dangerous ground, but I've got to go there for a minute, but I don't want to stay there. Remember in the, one of the opening meetings, I made that distinction between the Protestant worldview and Catholic. I wanted to set that out, and I asked everybody to be careful not to, to see that as, a, as an effort on my part to exempt us from this critique. If we didn't see ourselves as a part of this, then I think we're missing. But one of the things I said is, if you look at that, if you look at that Christian world that's in decay, you find no sacraments. None. I mean, the, the Protestant world virtually doesn't know them anyway. So I want to put this question out. What's at the center of this book is the problem of how a man deals with a wound. Yeah? We're, we're back in the world of the Iliad. How does a man deal with the wounds he's been given? An injustice stunned him. He's been wounded. In this case, it's by a whale. It's not Hector. It's not the suitors. You know. It's not Turnus and the Aeneid. It's, it's, but it's a wound. And he's religious enough to want to answer it. And in some sense, it seems, it's, I think it's really important that we have to respect the difficulties he's in, because I think he's in a difficulty all of us are in all the time. He wants to get to the bottom of it. So at the, at the center of this epic is a wound. And, and it, faces, uh, it presents him and us as readers with a problem. What happens to any of us when we, when we feel ourselves victims of what other people do? In the Protestant world, on land, everybody goes to sleep. That's what we saw. At sea, stub, flask, or starbuck in some ways, are all of them go along with it. On the quarterdeck scene, Ahab appeals to it. Remember that opening? Remember that opening? Ch in chapter 41, don't go there, but in chapter 41 at the opening, I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs. Welded? Can you get any closer than that? How strong is that? And stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of that dread in my soul. A wild, mysterious, mystical, sympathetic feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and vengeance. My question in the study guide was, how many of us have ever been caught up in something where we found somebody appealing to our sense of being a victim? Or how often have we been with people who present themselves as being victims 
in a way that calls out our sympathies because we identify with them. And if, you, if you've been attending to me all along, you know from, from the Iliad on the dangers of pity. Yes? So here at the center of this work is this experience of being wounded, victimized, being made helpless by nature. What's one of the great themes of the modern world? Man against nature. The source of it? Here we are. Now, here's the question, and I don't want an answer, I don't want to discuss it, I'm just going to throw it out there. When any of us have reached a point where we feel a victim, how strong is the urge in us to want to get back? And the question that we're presented with, in by the way, I want, to, I want to be really clear. Remember the answer to this according to our faith, Dante, our church, St. Thomas, Christ. We are asked to work for justice. We're not supposed to let wrongs go. So I just want to be clear that I'm not misunderstood here. With respect to being a victim, what's our option? We can either be a victim, the self-pity, the despair, or we can move with Christ. What a Catholic has that a Protestant doesn't is the Eucharist. Every day we go to Mass, we enter into a Eucharist to be with Christ in an offering of himself, to be a victim. We hear this language constantly, to offer ourselves as bread, to give ourselves up. So, just to hold on, I, once again, I, I want to be careful. I'm, I'm trying to make that clear because there's a difference between a Catholic and Protestant view. And I don't want to, I don't want to blur them. But I'm not doing this to exempt us from this critique. We're in Melville's world. He's looking at a Christianity that is failing. I think it's important to find ourselves in it. But at the center of this work is this experience of being wounded and the power it gives him over other men. Because everybody identifies with being wounded. So Ishmael is looking at this wound in this American context. Okay? That's at the heart of this story. Now, if I can leave that there. So, we looked at that passage in the quarterback scene where Ahab got everybody involved and Starbeck reflects on it the next night or that night and remember he says he felt overwhelmed, overmanned. Stubb goes to sleep on it, Flask will too. Stubb will smoke his pipe. His answer to problems is to smoke his pipe. Remember when he gets up in the morning the first thing he reaches for is his pipe, not his pants. <laughs> How many men do that? I mean this sense of superstition with a thing or women. Um, Starbuck can't answer it, Stubb can't answer it, Flask can't answer it, and then in that 41st chapter of the Moby Dick at the beginning, Ishmael says, I shouted more than anybody else. So at this point in the, in the book, we see a whole crew who finds themselves on an enterprise completely committed to it because of their identification with Ahab and their sense that these are wrongs that should not be tolerated and they should be answered. And in, in that spirit, they're going to work with him to, to go after this whale. Okay. Now, where are we here? Okay. So, after the quarter deck, what happens? 
last time, last week I went over the plot, right? We, we've done this, yes? Everybody's clear on this, right? Every good plot, according to Aristotle, remember, turns on, on the peripatia. You all know that word, right? The peripatia, the turn, the reversal. And we, we know that deeply from our church. We call it an um, uh, What's the word? The left. Benanoia. Benanoia. <laughs> it's a turn, right? A conversion. That we go through life and we think we're fine. It's, it's something I think smart people are particularly given to because with our smartness, we always have answers for things, like, like Oedipus. And then Oedipus comes to a point in, in his life where he realizes he thought he had all the answers to things, and then he saw how deeply wrong he was. That we, we, go, we reach a point in our life where suddenly we realize all these things that we had in order and we thought we understood suddenly get turned topsy-turvy. It's like a rug is pulled out and we realize that there was so much more going on than we realized, and then we begin to look at ourselves differently and a change takes place. In, the, in our readings in the Bible, it's called a change of heart. God keeps saying, I don't want sacrifices. What he wants is a contrite heart. That's what God asks of all of us, contrition, that we see ourselves in a different light with his help. So, um, according to Aristotle, every plot, every good plot, turned the, the best plots, turn on the peripatia. The, it governs the action. And in that sense, what's implied in every good plot is the work of reason. Even if we don't see it, it's at work. The logos. There's something going on in this action that's greater than what the characters are doing that helps the action turn and bring it to its resolution. Is that clear? There's something going on in the action beyond what the humans think they're doing that's greater than anything they're doing to help bring this action to its conclusion, to a resolution, to work out this problem. So every plot, in a sense, is a reaffirmation of reason or the logos, that there is this light um, that we participate in from the gods. It's greater than us. We don't see it all, but we participate in it. But through some help that they offer, by sharing in that light, working with it, a plot, a turn takes place. So, we saw that, um, and, and this is true of every work that we've read, every single work has an opening conflict, a complication, a crisis, a denouement, a resolution. The opening conflict we said was um, Ishmael lost. He's depressed, he's melancholy, he, he, he is morbid with feelings of death, he wants, to, he wants to carry a gun and ball, talks about throwing his body on a sword, he brings up funeral lines. He's morbid with death. The complication occurs, it seems to me, on the quarterdeck scene when everybody ships out thinking everything's going to be okay, and we suddenly realize that, that everybody's shipping out for something they hadn't intended. So what seemed to be simple, remember Ishmael leaves the harbor thinking, oh, we're going to sail into these green fields and everything's going to be sweet and lovely, and then suddenly we're in the midst of this, what will turn out to be a tragic plot. The crisis is when the action reaches its pitch. The denouement is the unraveling, that all the problems that were knotted, that, that created what seemed to be an insoluble problem, they get sorted out 
they unravel, and that's the condition for the resolution, what will bring the whole action to its close. Now that's been true of every word we've read. So what we remember, every epic, this is to me is so crucial, every, remember, every epic begins in medius race, in the midst of things. Where does this begin? In the middle of Ishmael's life. In medius race. And it doesn't mean arithmetic middle. It means in the midst of things. When we're all of us have had these moments when something terrible happens in our life, personalized. It can be involving ourselves, some wrong we've done. It can be um, that moment when we learn our kids are on drugs, or um, Aunt Sally's husband ran off with another woman, or um, my brother committed suicide. The, the neighbors across the sea, the street from us, is the man's brother took his life a year ago. You know, I mean, we're, all of us, I mean, there's this drama that we're all involved with and we get the news when sudden, it shocks us that we, we weren't prepared for it. In the midst of things, in medias race, in the midst of things, we're in the middle of a problem. Nobody sees it. How many people, Mrs. Hussey? Pelot Bildad? None of them. Is Quiquet conscious of them? No, he's not. There's something going on. Ishmael is the figure here that's going to undergo this journey to help bring us back light. And hopefully something else we gain from our reading, whatever, whatever it does to our hearts, I hope. Um, so the, the day you want is the unraveling and then the resolution answers. So every plot is a reaffirmation of the fundamental place of reason. And by reason, I don't mean reason the way moderns use it, because reason is screwed up. I'm going to make... It's closer to what Aristotle called right reason. And rightness means, in that sense, naturally right, there's something right about it. And I think it means in tune with the divine order, its reason, with God, his wisdom. Because we can, all of us, abuse reason. We've talked about that. Um, reason is our greatest power, and in, so often we do bad things with it. Iago, Leontes, who was a terribly admired, you know, admirable person, um, that, that reason is a, our greatest gift and in some ways a dangerous one for us. So, Okay, so here's, here's where we are. So where are we here? Um, we've left land and this Christian world. Now we're at sea, this place of um, flux and change and everything that's indefinite and unsettled. What happens in the chapters from, what is it, 48 to 68? Is that where we were? I'm going to call setup chapters, because I don't know what else to call them. We're, we're, not, we're not close to spotting Moby Dick yet. So what, what Ishmael is doing, what Melville is doing, is preparing us. Now, everybody just for a moment, um, if you take a look at the table of contents in the very beginning, if you look from 48 to 68, except for the Goni Gam, 
and the town hogan. By the way, did you all get the note to read the town hogan? Except for the, except for the um, goni gam and the town hogan, almost nothing happens. Stubb kills a whale, not much is made of it. it, it um, Ahab's disappointed because it's not going to be there. Um, so what's Ishmael doing? The white whale is waiting. We'll be, I mean, that's off. It seems to me he's doing a couple of things in preparation for that moment when the Pequod will encounter Moby Dick. Now take a look at the chapters. Um, the important chapters for us had to do with the quarter deck when Ahab gathered everybody together. And then in chapter 50, when a whale is sighted, remember, and Fadala comes out, that's the first glimpse we get of that group of five men that Ahab snuck aboard. And they're all shadowy. And we learn that Fidala is from an Eastern cult and clearly something that's demonic. That Ahab is being advised by somebody who's demonic in his beliefs. Now, except for those, if you go down the line, the cytology, Moby Dick, the whiteness of the whale, surmises Ahab's boat and crew, the monstrous picture of whales, 55. Of less erroneous pictures of whales, 56. Of whales in paint or teeth. Why are all these chapters on representations of whales, 57. Brit, 58. Squid, 59. The line, 60. The dart, 62. The crotch, the stupper, the whale. Cutting in the blanket. You see all that, right? Let me, let me just comment on two things, and then I want to look at the town who story to end all of this. It seems to me that Melville's doing, I hope I've got this right because remember I've been rushing to get this out in my mind right now, so scrambled. I think he's doing three things if I've got this right. It's not written down, I'm not sure I'm going to get this. Um, one of the most important things that's happening right now is that um, we know that Ishmael's committed to this vengeance quest. Absolutely, with everything he's being. But he's already begun to see that there's something wrong with Ahab. Because remember in surmises, he saw that even though Ahab is committed to this vengeance quest, he has to go through the conventions of the practices on a whale ship or he'll lose them in. So there's this faint recollection that things are not right, even though he's committed. How often does that go on with any of us? That in our workaday world, we may catch faint glimpses of something, but they don't register very heavily at all. We're so preoccupied in what we're doing. So one is, he's learning. We're, we're not at Moby Dick yet. And if, if we look at these chapters closely, what we see in almost every single chapter is he's describing some analogy of being. He's seen an integral connection between one thing and another that ordinarily we don't see. So in one sense, even though he's not explicit about it, he is affirming the, the world that we left off with in Dante. That there is a world of being, everything is related because its ultimate source is God. So there's affinities between things everywhere. I'm going to come to that in a minute. I'll show it, so if that seems too abstract. But just hold on to that. Now, think about that. What's the difference between Ahab's way of looking at the world and Ishmael's? 
Ahab is single-minded. I've talked about this. The masculine, practical, intellect and in women today, this instrumental sense of getting from here to here directly, that machine-like sense of efficiency of getting something done. I think the masculine intellect is steeped in that. Um, it's from here to here because men tend to live in their minds. Um, so the disorders of the intellect are really present. Ahab wants, he has one goal in mind. It's to, it's to get back at the thing that hurt him. What's happening in Israel? It wasn't planned. He's on board ship. He has all this time. And every day he's finding wonders around him. And every day he's learning to see the, connect, the interconnectedness of things between one thing and another. I'll give an example in a second. So one is Ahab's, sorry, Ishmael is learning. It's like he's being inducted in, into a medieval way of looking at the world, of seeing this analogy of being, the interconnected, the affinities that things have with each other because they're all ultimately related to a creator. The second is, why all these representations of whales? The cytology, the Moby Dick chapter where all the prodigies are described, the whiteness of the whale, of the mountain or the monstrous pictures of whales, of the less erroneous pictures of whales, of whales in paint and teeth or wood. Why all these chapters on the way whales are represented? Anyone want to take a stab at Why is he giving so much attention at it? This isn't accidental. He doesn't, he doesn't have to deal with any of this stuff. He could have left it off because the whale, the white whale's waiting for us. I think, how many of you have read the Scarlet Letter? Have any, yeah, I'm sure it's probably that. But interesting thing, if you've read the Scarlet Letter, you remember that the Scarlet Letter um, begins with the Custom House opening. It's a long introduction in which Hawthorne describes himself as the custom house keeper and all these, because there's a, there's a change of um, regimes, it's a transition of power, he's stepping into a job or I think he, or lost, I can't remember, but he's in the custom house and he goes through all these ordinary political affairs that are, make up the day that time that are historically factual, historically factual. Now, why would he have done that when he's talking about this letter that when you put it on your chest, when Hester does, it glows? Or if you touch it, it burns? Why is, he, why is he doing that? Because he's writing a romance and he's got to answer the critic, the skeptics who are going to say, why read this nonsense? Are you kidding? This stuff is stupid. It's literature. It's poetry. Who wants to read poetry? What's Melville dealing with? He's dealing with this white whale who has all these superstitious stories told about him, who seems to have a personality of his own, and something strange is going to happen at the end when, Mel or when Ahab tries to kill this creature. It's almost as, and Ahab, Ahab thinks that, that, that mask scene where he said, I don't care if it's the mask or the agent, I will strike through that mask and get through it. Because he believes, even if this is a natural creature, that behind that creature is a malevolent God, an evil. So that the ultimate understanding of things is this sinister force. And here is this whale stoving the ship at the end of the story. Um, so vindictive, vengeful, I mean, how would he understand it? So he's writing this what, what so many people would call 
um, critically, a romance, something improbable, unbelievable. Why read it? He's doing everything he can to make us aware of how realistic he is in his understanding of whales, his critiques of them. What they do, I think, is, is strengthen our confidence in him in a, as a reliable narrator, that, that we can trust him because he's so, he's so impartial in presenting all of these things. Because he's, he's going to make a claim at the end that's going to be outrageous. So, so one is, these are set up chapters. We're seeing Ishmael learn to read nature. But at the same time, he's teaching us to look at whales in a spirit of disinterestedness because of what we're going to face later. Okay? And there's the third and I've forgotten. I can't remember. These are the setup chapters. Okay? Now, let me just very quickly turn to... Um, turn to... Um, chapter 58, the Brit. Um, on... What did I say? 58? What is it, Doug? 331. 331. Um, take a look at the, um, towards the end. The first book we read of, um, just in the, pa- in the passage of the paragraph before that, but though to Landsman he says, go down a few lines in that paragraph. However much in a flattering future the science and skill may augment, yet forever and ever to the crack of dawn the sea will insult and murder him and pulverize the stateliest, stiffest frigate he can make. We go to, we go to sea feeling confident that the ship we make, the, the Titanic, and you all know that story, the hubris behind that, that that was an indomitable, I mean, what an irony. Um, that science and skill may augment yet forever and forever to crack the doom, the sea will insult and murder him, pulverize the stateliest, stiffest frigate he can make. Nevertheless, by the continual repetition of these very impressions, man has lost the sense of the full awfulness of the sea which aboriginally belongs to it. The first boat we read of, what's the first boat? Come on, in the Bible, what's the first book? Noah's, yes? And what did he do? Because the sea was going to overwhelm everybody. So here's that comic epic view again. That we're, we're back, we were back with Adam and Eve, now we're back with Noah that gives us an orientation to the sea that we're not meant to forget. The first boat we read of floated on an ocean that with Portuguese vengeance had whelmed a whole world without heaving so much as a, a widow. That same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Yea, foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the fair world it yet covers. Is Is it clear? What's going on from this perspective is a continuation of that mythic world that was present with Noah. 
We still have ships being destroyed all the time. So the sea, once again, is presented as this dangerous force. Top of, or the top of the, or the next paragraph. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide under the water, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. In a moment, we're going to look at the shark massacre, where you know after Stubb caught his whale, and the whale is hanging on the side, that the sharks are going to be eating, and Ishmael is going to present that as an, an analogy of the way in which men feed on each other in this social world where we prey on each other, we use, exploit each other for our own purposes. The line, the next chapter. At the very end of the chapter, he says again, as the profound calm which only apparently proceeds in prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself, for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm and contains it in itself as the seemingly harv harmless rifle holds the fatal powder and ball in the explosion. So the graceful repose of the line as it silenced the serpentines about the oarsmen before being brought into actual play, this is a thing which carries more of true terror than any aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks, but it's only when caught in the swift sudden turn of death that mortals realize the subtle, the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. Chapter after chapter after chapter, he keeps describing some aspect of the ship life, and chapter after chapter, he keeps showing some analogy between that and the activities of men. They help define our world. It, it helps us to see more clearly aspects of our world that ordinarily we're blind to. This analogy of being, that there are these affinities between things. Do we see them? Remember Hamlet, who's there? Dante. All things are interconnected because they go back to the same God. The underlying view of the Christian Middle Ages was logocentric. There wasn't an aspect to, cre to creation that didn't conceal the logos, the word, Christ. So there are these affinities everywhere. Do we see them? The blanket on, um, on the very end. Doug, take a minute and describe the blanket. Because you did a dinner tonight. Can you? I know this. Everybody. Has everybody read it? No. no. Okay. So they. If you can do this briefly, just describe them. Go ahead. They lashed the dead whale to the side of the ship, and then they attach a humongous tackle to the main mast, mast, which is the strongest part of the ship above deck. And then um, two of the mates take their whale spades and carve a hole in the in the whale and they take one of the hooks from the tackle and stick in the hole and then they start hoisting until they, it takes all the men to do the hoisting and they finally get the whale up high enough 
so that they can slice open um, a section of his skin, which is, as Ishmael says, the blubber, and they start just rotating the whale and pulling off the blubber, and he um, describes it as being like peeling an orange in one piece. I go to the blubber itself, why it was important as a, as a form of insulation. Oh, it, the Ishmael is amazed at the um, wonder of the blubber because it protects the whale. It keeps him warm in the Arctic and keeps him cool at the equator. Um, so it keeps his, his temperature at a livable level no matter what the environment. Just hold on to that, because that I mean it may sound like. But this is this was the last cha last chapter of a reading, and I know you all read it because you're keeping up. <laughs> turn, 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 turn to turn to fifty eight, the very end of, of sixty eight. Well, I know very, very lots of people. Sixty eight. Sorry, sixty eight. This is the chapter on the on the on the blanket that Doc has just described. Go to the end of that chapter now, because, and hold on to what she said. Ishmael is struck at the wonder of the blubber because it provides insulation for him wherever he is, whether he's in the Arctic or in the, on the equator, whether he's in cold weather or hot. And, and the conclusion that Ishmael makes is here at the very end of the chapter. He says, How wonderful it is then, except after explanation, that this great monster to whom corporal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found at home, immersed in his lips for life in those Arctic waters. But more surprising is it to know, as has been proven by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of a Borneo Negro in summer. Now here's his conclusion, and this is the point of it. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of strong individual vitality. Let me, let me comment this again. Let me edit. Is there anything that God made that wasn't purposeful or good in itself? If God is good, there's nothing. The Protestant view is that nature's depraved. The Catholic view is that there's nothing God made that wasn't good. It's wounded, but it's good. So everything in nature is purposeful, has an order, and has a beauty in its form, the thing that distinguishes it from everything else, right? Everything. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of strong individual vitality and the rare virtue of thick walls and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. Oh man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Now how often would you get advice like that? If you want to model yourself in somebody, model yourself on a whale. <laughs> model thyself after the whale. Do thou too remain warm among ice. Do thou too live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's. Here's that Rome, except, and it can't be more positive. Like the great dome of St. Peter's and like the great whale. Retain, O man in all seasons a temperature of thine own. One of the truths of the Iliad, Hector wanted to be a god. 
we talked about this. He, he wanted to be somebody he wasn't. What happens to him when he puts, what happens to Patroclus when he puts on Achilles' armor? Dies. What happens to Hector when he puts on Achilles' armor? Dies. The, the struggle for each of us is to be who we've been given to be and not trying to be something we're not. Be at home in the equation. What does Paul say? Doing Rome. I mean, we're supposed to. What was Ishmael's response to Queequeg when he first saw him? Jumped out of his skin. A day later, they're married. <laughs> Here, I want to just quickly, we're, time's up, but I want to very quickly. The town ho. I want to, I want to just quickly tell the story um, and then leave, leave you with a couple of questions. Um, and this goes to this whole question that I, um, I introduced a minute ago. What is Melville doing? What is Melville doing in all of these chapters dealing with representations? Now stop and think about this for a minute. In the Townho chapter, Mel, Ishmael is, preventing, is presenting to us a story that he got from Tashtigo, who got it from a crew member on board the town hall. So it's three removes, and he's presenting it to us now as he told it to a group of Spaniards in Lima, Peru, a few years before. So the whole question of representation, how did he know this story when he wasn't there to tell it? Well, he got it from Tashtigo, who got it. So in some sense, Melville's covering, covering his tracks. Is that clear? Ishmael's telling a story that he wasn't privy to. Yep. Because he, there's a lot of things that go on in this boat that he could not have been privy to that he reports to us. In fact, some of it I don't think he can account for. But, but once again, he's, Melville's aware that so many, lots of readers are going to be very skeptical and they're not going to believe what's going on. What's at the issue of this story is belief, fundamentally belief. Um, in chapter 40, 54. He describes how he got the story, and then he goes on to tell the story the shipmate told of a previous voyage of the town home. They were at sea, the, the ship started taking water. Radley, the mate, told Steel Kilt to mop. Radley is a very cowardly kind of guy. Um, Steel Kilt refuses to do it. There's a mutiny because Steel Kilt was the head of a group of men. They all get put below and the captain tries to starve them to get them back under law. And man by man, they come up as they start to starve. Stukilt is the last one to come up. When he comes up, he's going to be flogged by the captain. Stukilt turns to the captain and says, you lay a hand on me and I'm going to kill you. He's tied and bound. The captain is terrified. He turns the task over to Radney. Radney flogs him. Stukilt says to you, I will kill you for this. He starts to plot the death of Radney. He's a day away from performing the act. Um, on page 297, at the very beginning of the chapter, in the middle of that first paragraph, he says, to some the general interest in the white whale was now widely heightened by a circumstance of the town whose story which seemed obscurely to involve with the whale a certain wondrous inverted visitation of one of those so-called judgments of God which at times are said to overtake some man. Remember now, we've got a scientific view of the whale and now we're getting this narrative story in which the, the, 
the narrator, Ishmael, is talking about a a seemingly inverted judgment of God. Now what happens, um, Steelkilt has prepared this ball by getting these materials together and he's going to use to crush Radney's skull. On the morning of the day on which he plans to commit this murder, Moby Dick is sighted. They lower boats and go in chase, Radney being the... Um, um, huh? Lead, lead boat. Yeah, but the, the what's the word? Um, Harpooner? Sort of, Pat, he's, um, he, he, he's too quick and violent temperamentally to act, and he, and he wants this whale. He gets he in the boat. Um, Moby Dick stoves the boat. Radney goes in. And the last description we have of him is Moby Dick grabbing him in his mouth and going down. So he takes him to his death. Now, it, so it looks as it, now it looks as if Moby Dick has intervened in an action to spare a man, to keep a man from committing murder, and to and to execute, to kill the man who incited it all, put it all into action. Is that clear? If you read the story, if you've read it, you'll get it clear. But here's the ending. Take a look at the ending. Um, On page 313, towards the top, second paragraph, yet complete revenge he had, and without being the avenger. Radney's gone. Mm -hmm. For by a mysterious fatality, heaven itself seemed to step in to take it out of his hands. It's own the damning thing he would have done. It spared him from damnation. Now, is this an accident? Coincidence? An act of God? How do we read these things? Go to the end. At the very end, he's with these Spaniards, obviously Catholic. I mean, it raises this whole question of where Melville is on his casket. To me, it's, it's, I think I have an answer, but I don't want to give it to you. Um, the sailors on page, on page 316, the Spaniards said, are you kidding? They asked for a priest to come with a Bible and make Ishmael swear on the Bible because it's so unbelievable. At the bottom of 316. Then I entreat you, tell me the best of my own convictions. This your story is in substance really true? It is so passing wonderful. Did you get it from unquestioned? That is, what are people going to do when they put down this book? Are you kidding? You expect me to believe this happened? Right? Here we back, we're back again on these representations of artwork. Is everybody following? When you put down this book, I mean, how many people are going to say, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, kids in high school are going to laugh at this. Here, the Spaniard is saying, this is unbelievable. Bear with me if I seem depressed. Also bear with all of us, Sir Sailor, for we all joined Don Sebastian's suit, cried the company. Is there a copy of the Holy Evangelist? He wants the Bible. He's going to ask Ishmael to swear. So he does. They bring the, the priest in the Bible. Go down a few lines. Will you be so good as to bring the priest also, Don? Though there are no auto de fe's in Lima now, the, the uh, what do you call it, the Inquisition, said one of the company of another, I fear our sailor friend runs risk of the archbiscopacy. Ishmael's Episcopalian. Is the bishop, the episcopate, going to censor him and even punishing him for publishing such outlandish lies? Now hold on to this, listen to this. Melville felt himself to be persecuted by his readers all of his life because they said he was doing blasphemous stuff. 
you can imagine how they felt about this. It was a blasphemy. Remember Ishmael when he turns away from you, when he says, you know, I'm going to become pagan. He's turning from his presbytery. Melville felt persecuted all his life. He had read articles on the Inquisition, took this very seriously. The persecutions were real. Though there are no auto de fe's in Lyme announced one of the company, I fear our sailor friend runs risk of the Archie Episcopacy. Let us withdraw more out of the moonlight. I see no, that is, they got to go into the dark to perform this because it's, sh it's shameful. They go into the dark. He obviously swears. He says, this is the priest. He brings you the evangelist, he says, top of 317. Let me, let me remove my hat. Now, venerable priest, further into the light and hold the holy book before me that I may touch it. So help me heaven and on my honor, the story I've told you, gentlemen, is in substance and its great items true. I know it to be true. It happened on this ball. I trod the ship. I knew the crew. I have seen and talked with Steelkilt since the death of Ragnar. He swears in the Bible. Why, does, why, why this story of the town? It is the longest chapter in the whole book. Because it's the counter story to Ahab. Ahab believes that the whale is evil. Now we've got a first-hand account of an actual experience, an event, where Moby Dick came in and seemed, seemed to, to prevent somebody from doing a damning act. Now what is this all for? When we put this book down, <laughs> what are we going to say? These things don't happen. Are you kidding? Um, is one of us going to say, get a priest and let's swear on this? So we, you know, I mean, how, what's the response going to be? How, how are we going to read this epic? If, it's, if, it's ish, if it is Jonah coming back, are we going to blow it off? Or are we going to take it seriously? So this is the setup part. Um, we're going to get we're getting closer and closer to what happens with Moby Dick, but don't take any of this stuff lightly. It all seems really light, but it's not. Melville's it's really amazing what he's doing there. But you guys have a good week. Have a good week. Whatever it is on the, that list, but it's something like that. 60, 68 to 88, something 68 to 88, 20 chapters. Well. You know, South China Sea, is, I always remember the captain telling me that the, was, we're always cautious about we're sailing and that there are no no maps that really cover it. Right. And there are, you you just go in there and you, you take at risk. We, we did have four weeks in the sonar, but even that was not a guarantee. So when you, I said, well, how tough all of these 